Hello and welcome to this, the 39th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And it's it's been another great week here for us here at Rise. It's been a, a hectic one for me personally because, as uh, as you know at this stage, I am pulling the gloves back on to go and play Dan Coyle Jr. again uh, as Fight Night goes back on the road. And uh, it's been a phenomenal week because um, we did our first full run-through of the show on, on Monday evening uh, after what had been a really punishing training session with the boxing coach that morning. So my body was in... Uh, not the happiest of places, shall we say, but it's a very strange thing going back and running that show because, I mean, it's it's the guts of nine months since I last played Dan and, and last played Fight Night. And yet every single word of every single scene is still indelibly inked in my brain. Uh, and, and even more than that, there's emotional connections and kind of associations there with lines and with passages, and whatever else that are still there. Absolutely fresh, absolutely vital, which is, you know, lovely for me because it means that um, it means that I'm, I'm fairly confident we can get the performance back to where it was when we last ran it out but it's uh it's been a very strange experience getting back into that mindset but you know we're ready to rock and roll now i've put in um pretty strenuous training over the last couple of weeks to get myself back up to speed it was tough because it was such a tight turnaround this time around probably you know being honest probably not really enough time but uh but i'm in good shape i'm ready to go and do it and uh, we've started the transformation the head got shaved uh yesterday evening so I'm now rocking uh, a full boxer's haircut and I'm uh, in boxing shape. I'm ready to rock and roll and, and really looking forward to it. Looking forward to taking the show to uh, a few places that we haven't been before and looking forward to getting new audiences in to see it. And uh, we've had uh, a couple of emails in this week uh, with, I, I guess, pretty much at this stage confirming other tour dates, which I'm not fully allowed to mention yet. But I'm guessing we might announce those on, on next week's podcast. So, uh, yeah, those those dates that we have coming up won't be the only ones. We will be keeping Fight Night on the road for for the foreseeable anyway. It's uh, it's the show that just won't die, man. I can't get rid of it. But it's good. He's keeping me in shape, so I can't even give out. So, look, as ever, we are bringing you this absolutely free of charge. We have promised that we'll never, ever charge for these interviews because I'm an idiot businessman and an all right actor. Uh, but, you know, of course, we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. And the best way to do that is... Is to go and just buy yourself some tickets. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And buying tickets is the easiest way to go and do that. If, however, you feel that um, ticket prices may be slightly outside your reach this week or this month, we understand that. Times are tight for many people. But maybe go and check out one of the crowdsourcing websites like fundit.ie, where uh, there's always a load of theatre companies over there, particularly in the run-in to the Fringe Festival and the Theatre Festival. There'll be an awful lot of theatre companies running campaigns over there looking to help get a few bob collected in to go and make those shows happen. Uh, our friends over at Ramblin' Man Theatre Company are back doing their True West production, so they're running a campaign over and funded as well. So always worth going and checking those out. And of course, then there are always ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about that podcast, whether that's face-to-face over a cup of coffee, by sharing the link as a Facebook post, or by retweeting the link on Twitter. That really helps us kind of spread the word. Do please go over and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Of course, if you're out and about, you can stream it from the Fight Night website, and they do usually carry us 
over on radiomate.ie. Um, you can go back and listen to all our other episodes, which helps us out chart-wise. But really what helps us, out, helps us out most in the charts is if you leave us a review on iTunes or simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. That really does an awful lot to help us out over there. It helps us spread the word about all the people we're profiling here too. Um, you can, as always, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. So look, that brings us to our guest this week. And uh, this guy is a superstar, a guy who I first came across uh, very early on in my career. Um, David Horan is our guest this week. And he was the assistant director on the Play on the Stars production, which obviously is now just opened for the Abbey Theatre again. Uh, but the last production that they did that Ben Barnes directed, obviously I was part of, and David was in assistant director on that. Uh, and that's where we first crossed paths. And, and mercifully, we've kind of had uh, a couple of opportunities to kind of cross paths over the years since. Uh, he's a guy I have an awful lot of time for. One of those really diverse set of skill sets that you see from some people in the business who are, uh, you know, so many strings to his bow from the teaching end of things to the directing end of things to the writing end of things. Uh, he has covered it all. He's a great guy. So look, as usual, I'm not going to take up too much time with the intro. We're going to get straight into the meat of this. Here he is, the awesome David Horan. The awesome David Horan. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm delighted to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, let's do what we do every week then. Let's get back to the very beginning. How, why, where, when? What was the spark for you? Why a career in theatre? Um, I think it started when I went to see a production of Amadeus that my school did. Uh, okay. With fifth year students acting it. Uh, and I only went because the boy playing Amadeus Mozart was my older sister's uh, boyfriend. Right. And I had a bit of a man crush on him. I thought he was the coolest thing since sliced bread. But I went to that show and I got knocked sideways. I was sick, physically ill for two days afterwards because the bad guy won. And wow. I, I'm, maybe I was, I was 13 or 14 and maybe I was really innocent, I'm not sure, but I genuinely didn't realise bad guys could win. <laughs> and it really freaked me out because I could see that Salieri was challenging God uh, and the battlefield was Amadeus. I, uh, um, I'm pretty sure I understood that. Yeah. And, and what I understood was Amadeus died at the end and Salieri didn't. Um, and so it was a two-hour experience where I got completely wrapped up in it and physically couldn't get over it. Yeah. Um, and then around the same time, I had a, that was done by an English teacher called uh, Jerry Hall, the school at Belvedere. Oh, yes, of course. And he only passed away in the sort of last 14 months. Yeah, that's true. And he, he did all the school musicals for 25 years and all the school plays. And people like Jim Cullerton came out from... Uh, he's had such a huge influence. It's nice to remember him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, and then I had another English teacher, Mr. Darty, who did Catch in the Rye around the same time. And I, Holden Caulfield was my hero because he thought everything was phony. And at that time when I was a rebellious 13-year-old, I was like, everybody's so superficial. Yeah. And he, I remember one particular class where he said, um, he got us, Holden wanted to meet one of his friends and he kept saying he wanted an intellectual conversation. That was his big thing. And then when he met him, and it took ages for Mr. Darty to get us to cop onto this, but when he met him, all he asked was about the girls he'd been with and getting his leg over. And it, it clicked somewhere for me that Mr. Dyer was trying to get us to understand that he said he wanted intellectual conversation. What he really wanted was intimate, intimacy. Um, and I think that began my, up until then, I was, and I was still a big football fan and yeah. all that sort of stuff. But somewhere with the, those two experiences, I didn't really understand them at the time. 
but I, the power of art or the, the power of expression and the contradictions in people and how we say one thing and do another and they may not mean the same thing. I think I, I, that's how I ended up years later going to Trinity to do the Beckett Centre course. And, and your thoughts in going in the door of Trinity were to go and be a director, to go and be an actor, to work broadly in theatre, to study things for a while and see what turned out? Actually, I did it because you do an interview and I thought I wouldn't need points in the leaving search if I'd gotten accepted to the interview. I, I was <laughs> a bit man. green on that front. And I, no, I did, at the time, I wanted to be a writer, I think. I was studying English as well. Um, and what happened was I had been doing an, a teenage improv class and I wasn't particularly good. I was always a self-conscious actor. Um, but the teacher would, uh, would tell us, she had her favourites and she would say, Darren was really good there and Ashley was really good there because... And she would tell us why. Uh, which was great, great stuff. But in terms of making me a better actor, maybe she should have been telling me how or yes. how did Darren know to do that great thing? Yeah. Um, but that's a much harder question to answer. The reason why I tell you that is because when we got into theatre, in, in, when I started doing this drama course, um, and I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for, we had a theatre practice class in first year with Brian Singleton. And that really opened up all the questions of playfulness and meaning and all the possibilities of what the stage can be. But I suddenly discovered that I just the tiniest head start because that teacher told me why what Darren did was good. And I would know, oh yeah, that works. And, it, and that tiny little head start where you feel like, oh, I'm okay at something. Yeah. Suddenly, uh, that meant I directed players Anybody who goes to Trinity, I think um, players is such an important place. Mm -hmm. You do 40 shows in a year. I think I did 11 shows in that first year uh, in play. In, um, and it was as much to socialize, but I also was doing the backstage and the operating. And the last one, though, was a lunchtime because I, I got to direct. Um, and they have a rule in players where the, your first directing job has to be a lunchtime. And I was fluky enough that the be um, this was 1996, 95 or 96. And uh, Trinity Players was about to be asked to be used for the Fringe. The Fringe was like two years old at the time. Okay. Um, and the chairman of Players wanted to get his own show into the Fringe. <laughs> but he couldn't be seen to be only getting his own show in. And Gunanua were going to rent Players during the summer. They, a very burgeoning Gunanua, I think, at the time, to do sexual perversity in Chicago. And Which I went to see yeah. with my mammy in Players. You brought your mommy to sexual Well, university. she brought me, okay. it's a lot of And David Parnell came in to see the space, and the way they got him to see it was to see my lunchtime show, which was Here is Monster, this poetic take on domestic violence right, okay. that I had found in the closet. Um, I, I found the play in the library somewhere, I'm not quite sure, uh, but that I really enjoyed doing. And having David Parnell to actually recommend it uh, yeah. meant that uh, it got accepted into the fringe. So the beginning of my second year in college, I had a show on in the Fringe Festival. Wow. Um, and at that time you got an Irish Times review and, and you went to the award ceremony and you realised that the, the, you know, the, the theatre scene is this, isn't that different from players in terms of there's a lot of different groups and everybody wants everybody else to do well and everybody knows the different work that everybody else is doing um, and then you've, you have mini groups within it. But basically I got an introduction to the what, which meant that my whole way through college from then on I, I just, I think maybe I was a little bit more clued in. Right, okay. And so, 
Looking back on that time, you said kind of heading in, you were thinking possibly being a writer, then this kind of evolution. So as you finished up there, was it, right, that's it, I now know that directing is for me and I want to go about it. And if so, how does one go about being a director? Because, you know, for a writer, you can sit down at a typewriter and bash away. For an actor, there is a more well-known route through whatever. But for a director, unless you have a team around you, kind of, you can't put on the show on your own, really. And I dreaded that thing of, I'm a director because I say I am, and for no other reason (laughs) as well. Um, And maybe I was too, uh, maybe I needed to be more confident coming out, but I didn't come out and set up a company like like, like a lot of other people do. I was looking at the group, I was a generation behind Corn Exchange, Pan Pan, uh, Bedrock, Loose Cannon, and, and I saw... I was really impressed with all of their work, and but they were also covering everything. If you wanted to do Middle English, then you were Loose Cannon. If you wanted to do new cutting-edge plays, you were Bedrock. If you were doing heightened physicality. And I wanted to do a bit of all of that because yeah. I didn't know any of it. Okay. Uh, and I, it just felt too early. Also, in my summer of second year, I, got to, I was really lucky to get to direct A Long Day's Journey into Night at the Crypt Arts Centre. Wow. Uh, that was totally the naivety of youth. I hadn't a clue what I was taking <laughs> on. And we advertised for actors on the equity grapevine line. And so yeah. we, I got actors who were you know, 20 years older than me. Um, and they were willing to work profit share. And I had an absolute ball. It was incredibly stressful. But we put the show on, um, and, it, and it got reviews that were mildly respectful. The Crypt Art Centre was a very important space back yeah. then. That was a place where anybody could get anything on. And I think you always need to have that space yeah. somewhere in Dublin. And we do now. And I think the Pierce Centre might be that place right yeah. now. Um, and then there's the 10 Days in festival. But to have that outlet, it just meant that I'd already worked with these actors who were older than me. And I really realised how much I had to learn. Um, And I definitely came out very aware of what I didn't know, as well as having the arrogance of youth and going, I know everything. I did a bit of both. Yeah, Um, which is probably no bad thing. Which is probably no bad thing. Uh, And so, so I couldn't set up a company, but what I did do was that I started to get assistant director's jobs. And that was from applying it to the, the final year of college, UCD, Trinity and uh, NCAD. All their different drama societies came together to put on one big show. Right. It was great crack and I was really lucky to get to direct it. Um, and it, we had the whole of NCAD's design team behind it. <laughs> wow. We had the Beckett Centre because we could afford the rent because we yeah. had that much money. I wasn't, obviously, we were all doing it for free. We were students. Uh, and I was able to write away to the Abbey and to the Gate and it resulted in a job interview and I got to assist Alan Stanford on an ideal husband in right. the summer after I came out. So for me then, it was assisting in the big houses from the beginning while allowing other actors um, and other producers to come to me with ideas for shows. Because one of the actors who was in Long Day's Journey Tonight wanted to put on Ecstasy by Mike Lee. Okay. And that was the beginning. And that was that's such a great play. That's such a great play. And there's an amazing Irish character in it that Stephen Ray created originally. Um, and I totally recommend uh, people to go back to that play. Actually, I think it's been a hit in London recently. Um, and I've, that was great fun to do and, and because I had assisted Alan Stanford he was really good he came and saw it and gave me feedback yeah. um, and I've been lucky to have a lot of good mentors along the way so I went that route of yeah. mentorship um, and 
from there you met other actors and eventually I ended up setting up Inish Theatre Company with Esau Golden and Carmel Stevens. Yes. And then we became a more it became a more formal or, or more usual route as as my directing starts to develop. Well it seems that with with Inish, it seemed that it got really successful really quickly. Or is that just my imagination of things? That it seems that shows really took off for you. Yes, that's thankfully. Um, <laughs> the World's Wife was our first one, and Isolde and Carmel, two fan, um, two really engaged actors who wanted to take control over their work. Yeah, um, had found this collection of poems by Caroline Duffy, and they want, thought there could be a play in it. Uh, and initially that was the drive just to put that one thing on but yeah. it transferred into the Bewley's Cafe Theatre straight yes. away um, and we were really happy to get another month's work out of it uh, um, and we also ended up setting up this thing when you what Inish became was a company who adapts other material to theatre and that's an excellent way to explore the medium yeah yeah uh, um, Milan Kundera never wanted his novels to be adapted because he thought what was best about his novels was what had, what could only be expressed through novel form. Sure. And he's kind of true. That's I think that's kind of bang on. And what's best about the theatre is what can only be expressed in theatrical form. Yeah. But that means if you adapt from poems or as we later did a novel or from the films, that you are forced to expand the language of the medium to try and find the right way of doing it and we had a ball um, and the world's wife Queen Kong I'll never forget it this this w- giant woman ape who'd fallen in love with a teeny tiny man <laughs> and I'm trying to put that on stage great crack um, but also then I mean Tick My Box and stuff would have been part of that as well wouldn't it and that was hugely successful also it, yes so we yeah Tick My Box was when we got brave enough to do the whole hog writing it ourselves yeah um, and uh, it was, yeah, it, we put that on in the fringe in Bewley's, again, actually, as an <laughs> evening show. Um, uh, there's a team here. Um, and what we did was we created a, an evening of speed dating uh, where two actresses played all the speed daters and the organisers, all the men, all the women. Um, and so it became a, a, an exercise in in theatricality as well as they started having to speed date themselves right. um, by the end of the evening. Um, I remember thinking that we were onto something when we came up with the idea that one of the daters would be a stalker and, and she would reveal herself to a man on the night near wow. the end of the evening. And just at the point where he's realising that this is a very scary situation, she would manage to convince him to listen to her. And then she sang Lionel Richie's Hello. Um, and that was, that's, that's what they call a coup de théâtre, isn't it? <laughs> it's a nice big theatrical gesture, but also in terms of a play that was going to be about connection and, um, and love, uh, it did what uh, Anne Bogart would have been a huge influence. And, right. and she talks about how the true art tends to slam ideas beside each other or and and there's no right answer but it's often somewhere in the middle of two extremes there's a truth yeah and the extreme is serenading is one of the most romantic gestures you could ever do to serenade someone but if it's from a person who knows where you live yeah um, and knows more about you than they ever should and more is refusing to let you leave. Um, we knew we had a, a climax to the show at that point, but what we didn't realise is that we were able to give a snapshot, a snapshot of Ireland of the day, because you suddenly are introducing 16 characters 
uh, a whole breadth of Ireland and a generation. And that was boom time. And it's an interesting play to look back on. Yeah, and also, like, it happened right at the time where speed dating had kind of just arrived and exploded in Ireland to an extent. So it seemed like it was right on the money, right at the right time. Which is funny because the play ended up getting translated into Finnish. Where speed <laughs> in an obvious move. <laughs> Again, because Bewley's Cafe Theatre has a relationship with this Outlaws Festival in, in Finland. And they saw it and they invited us over to perform it in English over there. And then they bought the rights and translated it. And it's still running there. Really? Three different companies have produced it over there now. Um, and it's really popular, and they've never had speed dating. <laughs> but the play explains the phenomenon at the beginning of the night. So, sure. so uh, Because, yeah, there's a feeling now it will be completely dated as a phenomenon in Ireland. Um, but it, it's interesting that it's had that longer life. So, I mean, you said heading into Trinity, you were thinking along the, along the lines of being a writer, possibly. This was a return to writing for you. And... A writing career has been relatively successful for you over the years, Mr. Horan. There's been writing right through, um, and there's been new play directing. So, um, and, and then I like to think when I ever come across the old plays, I treat them like new plays, right. and I treat new plays like they're classics. Right. I, but when it comes to the right, yeah, and it started with Tick My Box got interest from TV companies because it ended up touring Ireland a couple of times, um, and I went to Edinburgh and I went abroad a few places, uh, and Accomplice. Um, the makers of Pure Mule um, and uh, Bachelor's Walk contacted us asking would we be interested in turning that into a TV series and we were like absolutely yeah but then they asked well they said we know you can do this can you pitch us something new while we were in the midst of touring all the time and we were we said we would but then we just didn't have the time and then three years later after that sort of the seed of the thing had gone cold um they contacted us out of the blue again uh, because TV3 were looking for a modern adaptation of Oscar Wilde. Ben Frau had taken over his programming over there and BBC had just done Shakespeare Retold. So I think yes. it was quite popular as an idea at the time. And suddenly, apparently it would have been a bad thing that we work in theatre in terms of trying to sell us as writers with the tick my box idea. Of course. But now, the fact that we had a theatrical background would have been a plus. Yeah. So they asked quite a few writers, apparently, to pitch. But we pitched an idea which, le- which eventually became a film called Belonging to Laura, yeah. which was an adaptation of Lady Windermere's fan. And we had the... Uh, I'm told it never happens, but six weeks after pitching our idea, we were already, we'd already finished the first draft and had been paid for it. And wow. three months later, we knew it was getting made which was an extraordinary thing. Now, at the same time, it was our first foray into the screen world, and that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and again, it'll inform backwards. Again, you're stretching the medium again. So yeah. this is a visual medium now. You're trying to cut down on the dialogue. You're trying to create images. Even with small budgets, you're trying to create images that build and that, that need to be unpacked mm. and that are able to grow. So it's a whole other medium. We've had great fun exploring it. And so from there, we were then asked to come up with another idea. So we've done the importance of being whatever, yes. which got flipped over in the way TV, these TV things happen and became a teen drama soap and can be watched on YouTube, yes. um, uh, where you have 27 episodes where we tell the story of the importance of being earnest, but in a contemporary setting where it's young people um, and it's a young immigrant boy who chooses to enter the world of a drama school, um, of a drama class, uh, which is, but town and country, the, the importance of being Ernest's town and country divide becomes online and offline. And he has wow. to lie about where he's going, not into town, but into this drama class. So he creates a second alter ego. Wow. And that one in IFTA. Yes, not to put too fine a point on it. But, yeah. but like, you know, so IFTA winning writer. 
territory. And we couldn't believe that because we were up against Jedward. <laughs> and we hadn't, and we got out of the taxi and we were the night of the IFTA Awards and immediately ensconced by 60 screaming teenagers, Jedward, Jedward, Jedward. Wow. And it was like a sign from the gods. As it turns out, we should have realized Jedward weren't in the building. Their, their fans were waiting outside, but oh, Jedward okay. weren't coming. Um, and so it was a delightful surprise. Um, but it was a strong idea, and Robin Ronan Burke, who directed it, they really did a, they did a bang up job. You would have no idea that they filmed the thing in 15 days. Um, and had, wow. yeah, they had no time. They, you know, money budgets are tight everywhere you go at the moment. Um, but uh, delighted, absolutely. Are you as comfortable working? in working in kind of the screen medium as you are working on stage is it a different challenge for you is it something that excites you even more it doesn't excite me even more no okay. i feel the theater is my thing and when we write it's myself and Esau golden and yeah. she's incredibly important in terms of we are a writing team we write in the same room we never we don't write a word without passing it by each other we really? perform, yeah we act it to each other that's where i get my acting buzz right okay and um, because i i would love to act if I was better at it. <laughs> what a beautifully honest thing to say. Um, so, uh, so the screen doesn't come more naturally at all. Uh, and in some levels, it's more formulaic. Yeah. Um, it need, um, and it's, I'm at that place where I know enough to know I know very little um, in both mediums. But what they do do is they challenge each other. Yeah. And I, I think you can see theatre going that way all the time. Um, but there are things you can do in theatre that, um, and that you do in one room with lots of other people. And I think that's essential that it's all these people in the one room having a collective active imagination that really the screen can't match. Yeah. So, okay, we've mentioned uh, an ongoing relationship with Bewley's Cafe Theatre. Let's talk about Bewley's Cafe Theatre, because you are now Mr. Bewley's Cafe Theatre. Talk to me about that, talk about how that came about. It, I had just directed Hue and Cry by Deirdre Kinnan for Bewley's Cafe Theatre. Tall Tales, her theatre company, were celebrating their 10-year anniversary and they commissioned three short plays for Bewley's to perform back-to-back. Um, and obviously, I'd done other shows with Inish in Bewley's, so I've been a regular visitor, yeah. a regular attender. Like most of the profession, one of the great things about Bewley's yes. is because it offers theatre in the middle of the day, actors who are busy at night can see a play. Yeah. Um, and so it was 2000, and I'm in there four years now, uh, that I became artistic director after Alan King, who, um, and on my board is Michael James Ford and Kelly Campbell, who set the whole thing yeah. up. So I have a huge amount of support. Um, it, there had been that period where Bewley's, the building almost had closed down. Yeah. Uh, and then it had rallied and come back. So there's been huge support for the venue. And very quickly after I came in, our, our Arts Council funding rose in levels to something quite sustainable. We're around 50,000 okay. uh, up and down with it. Um, it it's, um, which, is, which has allowed me to bring a certain stability to the building because we've had the same front of house and technical manager Colin Maher for my whole who is exceptional who is a very special man and, and he is the spirit of the building yeah. and I think people who know him if they've yeah. ever gone to see a show um, and then Esalt has been working as an administrator so that's kept us in the same room in terms of a writing team yeah. um, so all of us are working part time 
And we think that's important because the nature of the building is that it's only 50 seats. Mm -hmm. So it can expand and it will expand. And we're looking to make shows have longer lives outside of Bewley's as a bigger thing. But it's going to be a gradual process uh, because we had to shore things up. We only started offering uh, credit card booking in January of 2011. And straight away that professionalized the experience for audiences if they want to book. That, so I came in to a building that was working and we just needed to be formalized a little and so the artistic choices would be to keep it lighter you don't want to be getting people down in the middle of the day yeah but we have had our big poignant plays the trick is that the world needs to be really secure really tight and the performances need to be really strong yeah. so this year we had Galway Girl was it was a massive hit and that's an incredibly bleak story but yeah. we had Claire Barrett and Joe Hanley directed by Terry Byrne and that was gorgeous Bewley's is also a new writing venue um, and we take that really seriously though we don't have the funding to be able to read plays um, we don't have a, we have a, a big stockpile of plays that we want to read that have come in unsolicited but we write back to the writers and tell them that if they want to skip the queue they might be better to approach us as a team with a director who's willing yes um, and with a production company because it, because we do, we're not the abbey we don't have a team of readers we don't we're not funded to that level yeah. one of the things we also think is important is very hard for writers sometimes to get their second album up yes um, or their third or their fourth and so there's a lot of great writing so we've had established writers like Gina Moxley Michael Harding uh, Peter Sheridan Fiona Looney, Gavin Costick, as you know. Yes, indeed. Uh, these are writers who are very established, Marco Halloran. Yeah. But it's brilliant to be able to put on uh, work by them that, that, they find, that they find harder to find a home for it elsewhere. Yeah. Well, it's like you said earlier on, but, you know, the, the space that the crypt filled for, for a number of years and that, that you know, a, a space that is accessible at not astronomical rents, you know, which can be a real challenge for people trying to put on shows. But Beauty's fills... Uh, if it's a lovely little niche in the market, and it's not a little niche, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, it's very well supported. And I think, like you say, when there was talk about the, the building being in danger, people really have a real love for that place. And I think it's, uh, we do give a unique experience to the audience, and uh, it's, it's really nice to offer that cultural experience in the middle of the day. Um, but what we also do is we, I think we have a great responsibility to the industry itself. We try and find a home for younger companies. We've had, you know, Sophie Motley, uh, Meridian, Cherry Wild, Mephisto. These are companies from all Rice around Ireland. All the Rice Productions. <laughs> well, the whole show in a bags and, and uh, it's, it's the show in a bag model has been mm. such a lovely fit with yeah. Bewley's as well. So while we, we want to be a home for younger companies to, to be able to play just like it was for Inish, at the same time we want to offer the big classics too. So we're doing it, the next show in is a GB Shaw, a Village Wooing, right. um, directed by Michael James Ford. And, you know, where would you get to see a one act by Shaw? Yeah. You know, and Pygmalion was such an exciting one last year and we, we actually wanted to get it up for them, but it wasn't possible. And at the same time, one of the really important things we do is we give an outlet for uh, serious acting talent um, to be able to explore a niche uh, interest. You know, so we've had Tom Hickey doing The Kiss um, and, we, and Peter Sheridan performing his 47 Roses. Which has been phenomenally successful. Phenomenally successful. Our dear Donnelly, Barbara Brennan, yeah. both did one-woman shows for us. Like, we've had real... And to be offering that talent, it's such a... So close up. 
Yeah. Um, so, and that was definitely keeping the acting talents high. It is not a chore because there's there's because there's so much out there, but it's yeah. really important to us. And what about the significance of the Beauty's Little Gem Award at the Fringe then? Because that is another. Uh, hugely beneficial award for people because uh, it's not just hey look at me I've got a shiny award it's actually there's a practical application for it that was the first in- initiative that we brought in when uh, when I took over because it was just formalising a relationship that already existed Bewley's was always cherry picking exciting work from the fringe and, yeah. and putting it on but it's as much for the companies themselves um, in, for them to be able to brag about it elsewhere. It was kind of awkward that Little Gem, the show, was yes. the same year <laughs> because we wanted to call it the Little Gem Award. Yeah. Um, so I don't think the people know it as clearly as the, the BCT Little Gem Award as they should yeah. as a result of that. But uh, So I often say to the judges, which isn't always us, um, uh, nominate a lot of shows let them have it on their we were yes. nominated for because that's why not and um, let's support uh let's support the industry as best we can and 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 up and coming talent as much as we can yeah but it's also important that the older talent has a has an outlet for doing stuff because when you get to a certain age there might be less roles or there yeah. might be less easy to stretch yourself so it's important that i am um, and we have a lot of pioneers who go off and tour like donald o'kelly all over the country, um, shows that start in small places. Mm-hmm. D- to tick my box, started very small and ended up playing 500 seaters. It's an amazing journey. Will you talk to me about your association with the Lear? Because this is something that is massively exciting. Um, because the Lear is still kind of, you know, a burgeoning thing. It's only just kicking off. But your official role at the Lear is. I'm on the acting team. Uh, I'm a, an acting technique tutor. So I teach scene studies and storytelling. And what is it like for you in terms of, is it an injection of energy to be going and dealing with these young kind of diamonds in the rough territory? It's, I think for everybody involved, the Lears, the National Academy, has a, it's only a year old now. It offers this full-time course to a three-year acting course um, and it's also then got all these other MFAs feeding in there'll be a directing designing um, and stage managing we're just at the end of our first year and it's it's been highly successful we feel um, the 15 students that have come through um, are so excited about a second year coming in yeah um, it's I chose to start teaching actually quite early after I left university and I was, I was getting money from the Arts Council by um, bursaries to do these assisting jobs. Um, and I tried to make the, I forced myself to try and make my living from drama or that all my jobs, I was working in the call centre. So quite early on I started teaching adult acting classes for Betty Ann Norton and yeah. um, I went back and started teaching a directing course at Trinity quite soon after leaving. Um, and that led to me teaching a scene studies module in the old Trinity acting course yes. to the second years, which I loved because I feel the teaching always feeds into the work you're doing anyway. Um, and so I was delighted and honoured to, to get a gig here. And what's great about teaching at the Lear is that it's part of the ethos that the team of tutors are out in the real world as well. Yeah. And that there's room and space you know, to be able to direct shows outside and come back in or to act or to be movement directors. Sue Mythen and Brian both do that. Yeah. Brian Burroughs. Um, and the team is just getting to know each other, but we, the whole, the Lear enterprise has been supported uh, in the, by RADA for the first five years, and we're borrowing some of their expertise um, in terms of the shaping of the course 
um, and even down to practical things like how many rooms you need in order to have all the classes yes. um, in the design of the building. And we have a, a head of the acting department is a woman called Hilary Wood. Uh, she learned, uh, sorry, she was the head of acting at Weber Douglas for, um, and she's been training actors for 30 years. Um, and I've been really fortunate this year to be able to shadow her as well. And, right. and she, so she has provided an awful lot of structure. The, the ethos would be to create, to allow the actors to develop a process of their own that's unique to them. I think the Lear will be very cognizant of the fact that the actor's role is changing in the yes. industry at large. They need to be more proactive. They might be asked to do work which doesn't involve them creating a character of any description. They may need to play themselves. Uh, but that said, I think it's also a given that a classical training is still the best preparation um, in terms of just feeling alive and, and free on a stage. Um, so we, we don't dictate a process, but we'll, they'll, we'll hope they build one over the time. Sure. I'm a believer in sort of provocation as a way forward. What we do is we provoke that idea that education is to lead educo. So um, you prov by setting tasks and exercises, the student themselves can form their own approach. But at the same time, we want to promote a culture and of the ensemble. Right. Okay. Um, and that and that the work that you do, uh, an actor needs to be able to be spontaneous in front of other people, and that involves being completely free and alive with their fellow actor on stage and open to what they're doing. So it's been so nice to listen to some of these other podcasts and hear talents like Owen Rowe saying. <laughs> I need the other actors to just be <laughs> other actors, but otherwise there's nothing. Um, yeah. um, so we hope we'll send them out into the world with that generous and, and that respect for the work. And for the yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about kind of the, the changing role of actors, because I, I, as you know, I was what was effectively this course in Trinity a few years ago. Um, and I, you know, absolutely adored my time there and thought it was a, a wonderful foundation going out. But I did feel that maybe where the gaiety were churning up more business savvy people who could go and tackle things. I felt that the, that possibly the, the old Trinity course wasn't necessarily sending people out there ready to tackle the realities of the business rather than just kind of, uh, it felt that we, we had handled the artistic side of things but not necessarily the practical side of things. So it's great to hear that that's going on. I mean, do you see this course at the Lear being the natural continuation of what was the old BTS and then BAS at Trinity, or is this a whole other beast? Because I know there's been some talk around the kind of the formation of the Lear in general, saying you know there's never been training like this in Ireland before, and I kind of thought, well, surely there has. Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. I think it stands on the shoulders of everything that yeah. goes before, and I think it's very important that it has a dialogue with the Gaiety School. I think there needs to be options, and um, there's no one way of doing it, and there'll always be fantastic acting talent that comes out mm. out of the blue. Yeah. Um, without any training or without, um, um, we're not kidding ourselves about that uh, in terms of preparing people for the business the first years have had a professional development strand um, right from the very off uh, where people have come in from the outside to just talk to them about about things like downtime what will yeah. you do uh, in, and how can you keep, keep that up and uh, you know uh, people like Nick Dunning have been so generous with their time now you should be talking to Lachlan Deegan about this he's the head of the course yeah. and uh, what, what this course does have is thanks to the influence of the Carl Ryan Trust um, it has a firmer it feels like it has a firmer funding bedding um, right. so there doesn't have to be as many compromises in terms of space and time uh, but there's no right way there's no one way there's no right way um, and it'll always be a moving organic beast and we'll see how we go and it'll be fascinating to see how mm -hmm. the students 
do when they come out the other side. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Hey, no pressure on them, right? <laughs> None at all, they'd be fine. Um, as you look back, are there highlights for you of, of shows that you've done? Is there, are there any particular moments that stand out for you kind of going, all the elements gelled together there, or that's what I was particularly proud of because I was terrified going into it and we pulled it off? Or... About when I was five years out of college and just beginning to wonder would I ever make enough money to be able to live outside, I got offered the staff director position at the Abbey right. and I was there for 18 months. Um, and I got to assist Laszlo Martin on The Wild Duck, right. which you spoke about with Judith Roddy, which was an incredible learning experience because he was a man of a theatre that he thinks about the whole ecology. And to be, because uh, he comes from a Hungarian theatre where he has an ensemble and he looks at actors in their 30s and says, what roles do I need to give them in order for them to be able to play Lear in their 60s? And, <laughs> which is and, just amazing. And, and that was an amazing. To be there, and then it was during Ben Barnes's time, it was just before the centenary, it was a really interesting to be thrown into that question of what is a national theatre, what are national stories, what, what is that going to be about? And then I left there to go straight to Lecoq, uh, the Jacques Lecoq theater, phys Physical Theatre School in Paris because I was beginning to bump my head up against a type of theatre that I wanted to make that I could see all around me but felt I didn't quite have the expertise and people were going oh you're going to that clown school is it that clown school um, and I would say yes and the reason I'm going is to be able to direct Shakespeare because I had this feeling that the heightened physical theatre that we saw that I that I could go and see Blue Encoats, who I yeah. was very impressed with, and Corn Exchange, and Barabbas, and, and the great Michael Murphy. And they had skills that I just that I wanted to know more about. But I also felt that it didn't. Ha there had to be um, a type of heightened physicality that wasn't a whole hog. Um, right. That wasn't. You're either playing a big clown or a big commedia character, or you're playing naturalism. It felt like there needed to be more of a breath, which of course there is. I just didn't know <laughs> how to broach that. And Lecoq teaches in that first year what they call the principles of movement, um, and I found that, that was incredibly instrumental for me. So I came home after that year, and I was very lucky that we just did tick my box before I left. And it was just beginning its first tour when I came home. I had to come home in the Easter in order to re-rehearse it. Yeah. Uh, but that helped fund me through the year. And the Arts Council uh, gave me some um, training because I was five years in. And yeah. that was absolutely vital to be supported in that way. Uh, and then when I got back, very soon after that, I got to do Metamorphosis with Paul Reed. Yeah. Um, and we used the Burkhoff text, but we didn't use the Burkhoff staging. Uh, and that was an, um, and I got to work with Brian Burroughs as a movement director for the first time. Um, and I, I think of that as the first time I got to use the skills that I'd learned there. Mm. But in the same way, it was only uh, last year I directed Macbeth for Second Age, um, actually it's the beginning of this year, and it's coming back again in the autumn. Oh really? Yeah, um, we're going to play uh, in the big Mahoney Hall in, uh, in the Helix wow. for another couple of weeks. And I'm really looking forward to getting back to it because I love coming back to work. Yeah. Uh, because you can always make it better. Um, there's always more to do. There's always a little heartbreak if an actor's not available. Um, but I t tend to think of these things as opportunities yeah. after uh, after this length of time. But it is, there's always more, the deeper you can go. Um, and I suppose I believe in a an, an ideal of a total theatre where the text and the ideas are as full and wholesome, but then there are things that you can do physically 
in terms of there's ways we can express on stage uh, purely visually um, that can work together and we can really condense and make dense the ideas and the humour and the joy um, and Shakespeare is a great way in because it has so many strands yeah. like Macbeth is a story it's a thriller but it's also a domestic marriage and it's also a story of honour um, and political backstabbing and the magic and um, well and for me the cyclical nature of violence and and the question of causality as well as you know because he knows something in advance did he have free will didn't he have free will and Shakespeare wrote about all of them and it takes a full theatre experience to be able to um to be able to ex- explore all of those details in a way where the strands one doesn't override the other or you don't belittle some of them in order to get into um, and and it takes the full gamut of yeah. theatre expression. Well, talking about shows coming back, there's another show coming back uh, in the near future. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I'm delighted to say that Pineapple uh, by Philip McMahon is very deservedly coming back to the Dublin Theatre Festival and it's going to play here in the Lear Theatre. Excellent. Um, Philip, I've been really lucky. The new writing is probably what I've gotten to do the most. Um, uh, Deirdre Kinnan, Aidan Harney, Conal Quinn, uh, and Philip McMahon in particular are, are people who I've got to work with more than once, yeah. new writers. Um, and I really think that uh, Pineapple, uh, which is the story of uh, Paula, a young woman who lives in the towers, in a, in a tower in Ballymun, and she's the pineapple of the title. She's harsh, prickly on the outside, but soft and juicy on the inside. <laughs> um, and Philly's written a story about a, a romance and about the pressures of that society. She has a younger sister who has gotten herself pregnant um, and isn't sure what she's to do, going to do about it and comes to move with her at the same time as she meets a man who offers the chance of true love and support. And it's hard for her to balance the two, her duties to home, her duties to her area. There's a wonderful relationship she has with a friend who, thanks to the regeneration projects, has already moved out of the towers but keeps coming back. Yeah. Um, and I really think it's an example. Philip McMahon, uh, I don't need to say it, uh, is, is a rising star of Irish theatre. It's an exquisite piece of writing too, and, and Philly's just like a force of nature. But it is, it's a beautiful, beautiful play. It really is, and a really accessible one too. And uh, it's very funny as well. Um, and, and it does everything. So it's a story that matters. It's a national story, yeah. um, and it's what we want our playwrights to do. Um, uh, and at the same time as that's going on, I'll be directing Halcyon Days, a new play by Deirdre Kinnan. Also at the Dublin Theatre Festival. Greedy and selfish as well. How dare I? Um, <laughs> and, and you asked me about highlights earlier, and I, well, it would be amiss of me not to talk about Moment, Deirdre's last play. Again, another world conqueror for you. We did. Um, and again, it was delightful that it got to come back because yeah. we got to re- re-engage with it. Um, and the show, so it played initially in the Solstice and Mead and in Project, and then a year later we got invited to, we got invited to lots, we played the Bush Theatre in London, which has been so good, a home for new Irish writing abroad, and they told us before we went there that if we could get, you know, you have the big three, you have the Guardian, the Times and the Independent, and if, you know, if you get one of them to like you, you're doing well, and right. if you get two of them to like you, then the thing's a hit. Um, and we had that lovely experience where all three wrote rave reviews and the thing booked out because the bush is the smallest space it was booked out within three days um, <laughs> uh, after the opening um, and, and deservedly so because Deirdre again is a she has a really uh, vicious streak 
uh, she's really able as a playwright. She was an actress. She knows how to craft a joke. Mm. She writes plays where she takes worlds, two different ideas, and she slams them together, which is what Halcyon Days is. It's, it's going to be set in an old folks' home, and it stars Anita Reeves and Stephen Brennan. Um, and, and it's a story about memory and the will to travel forward. You know, if you were doing the Hollywood thing, you'd be saying it's the conquering, it's hope conquers all, or is it? But it's not that, it's more Bikettian and it is more about how we must go on, we will go on. Uh, but it's incredibly funny um, and uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into rehearsal rooms. And Supercast too. Supercast. Uh, Supercast, who got really excited when they read the scripts. Great. And that's the that's best way to do it. And um, So we're really looking forward to it. We'll be hitting rehearsals in a couple of weeks. So the future for you, if we had a magic wand in the morning, is it 1.4 million a year for Bewley's plus your own company plus artistic directorship of the Abbey or, or what? What's, what's the ideal for you? To keep doing what I'm doing and to keep learning and to keep it being as fresh as it is. Uh, going back to Lecoq five years in was a great thing to do. And going, coming here to the Lear and reinvestigating how you train actors was a great thing to do now. Um, I really want to spend some time looking at the voice. Um, moving into writing for screen, is it, again, it, it opens up other questions. Right. Um, and I think it is, is more about questions. You never know. Um, I, you, you never know what, what you're doing. You're always, <laughs> you're always close to disappearing up your own yeah. And if you don't do that, or, but if you don't go close enough to doing that, then you're not sharing anything. If you're not embarrassed watching your own work, I think there's a problem uh, because it means you haven't shared enough and, okay. and uh, you, uh, you uh, you've directed yourself recently and you know that powerless, powerless feeling there is watching the show take place in front of you. But what we do as directors is we cre create the conditions for things to happen and then you hope that they happen. Yeah. But if they don't happen, that's interesting too. And then sometimes, the, um, uh, sometimes that the drama is in it not going exactly the way you wanted it to at all. So, uh, so I'll just I'll keep plowing away if that's all right with yeah, you. That sounds good to me. Talk to me then briefly about what do you think the job of a director is? Because you know you see, okay, when an award comes around for best director, it, it, I mean, should a director be almost? invisible from a show or should there, you have the stamp of that director all over go oh Jesus well that's very clearly a David Horan show that I've got to see there I think it depends on the show yeah. I think for me because I didn't set up a theatre company uh, because I wasn't uh, I, I, I want my interests were too diverse um, and on one level that was that was a good thing it meant that I had a lot of employers being pure freelancer the repeat work is incredibly important I pride myself that uh, I've worked so many times at so many different companies and it gives you a real sense of the industry at large but I realized the downside of that is that I'm not sure that people know as clearly what a David Horn production looks like versus what they might think uh, Selena Cartmel sure. production looks like um, I do know that I was really taken with the first uh, Robert Wilson show I ever saw. It was an extraordinary piece of vision making. Um, and that's not for me though. That's not the type of show that I, I could make um, because it's clear that he's able to dictate what he, exactly what he wants in a way that where it hasn't grown organically from the, from the rehearsal room. 
if one I do, so there are definitely shows where as a director you want to be completely invisible. Right. If you're directing new plays by new players, I think they deserve to see the play in its first incarnation as they had envisaged it, hopefully better than yeah. they envisaged it. But the world and the, and the mise-en-scene you try to create is the one that best supports what they want, the vision that they have. Um, how, but if you were doing a Shakespeare, you need to go the other way and you need to be, more, for me, uh, an auteur director. Yeah. And then let, there's a whole new body of work. And I, I wonder if I'd been coming out of college tomorrow, I know I'd have been making documentary theatre. Really? Well, so our adapting of poems and our adapting of novels, that was the shared experience, that was the Vogue, and it was a great way of stretching the form. And I'm loving all this work, which is highly subjective and post-dramatic. Um, uh, and it's just stretching the form in other ways. And what do you know, the writers are beginning to respond to it because yep. you have I Heart Alice Heart Eye, which purports to be um, <laughs> a, a documentary piece of a baton piece. And it just stretches the form. Um, and so it's great to see the... The playwrights will be forced to expand, um, and I just think there's quite a diverse amount of stuff happening in our industry right now. So there's no way you could say a director must be this because there's there's just too many different types of work. That's brilliant, David. Thank you so much for being to come on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to chat with you. I think that was a, a really great one. Thank you, Angus. So there you have it, the absolutely great David Horn, such a great guy, a guy I've got so much time for, and a guy who's really been very instrumental in a lot of the success that Fight Night has had over the last couple of years. I mean, David took a chance on us uh, in programming us in for the big summer season that we did uh, last year, where we were programmed in for a couple of weeks and, uh, and, and took a decision relatively early on because of the business we were doing that they were going to have faith in us to go and extend that run by an extra week. So we ended up doing the full six-week run there that summer, which was just a phenomenal thing for us in terms of an opportunity to get the show out to, to be seen by an awful lot of people. But also that kind of showing of faith in us as a company, as Rise Productions, but also the, the showing of faith in the show, Fight Night, um, was a huge vote of confidence for us. And, and it's something I'll be eternally grateful to David for. He's uh, he's an absolutely great guy. And, you know, stuff that we didn't really even talk about that much in the interview, his work as a assistant director on Play on the Stars back all those years ago when I was standing in for Aidan Kelly as understudy back when there was no real official understudy policy at the Abbey but uh, Aidan was in a situation where he knew his first child was going to be born during the run and there was a chance that uh, that was going to happen when he would need to be there and he would need to be on stage and so we we went through a lot of understudy rehearsals and whatever else and ultimately I ended up going on for a couple of nights uh, to stand in for Edo opposite of Cathy Belton uh, which David basically single-handedly directed which was just you know a wonderful experience for me career-wise in general to be up there sharing a stage with you know the likes of Cathy Belton and whatever else but also I mean David was very uh, I, I can't find the words really for how how, how well he handled those rehearsals and, and kind of not stepping on people's toes but, you know, making sure that the show was ready to rock and roll and that anybody who showed up on, the, on, on those nights where I was standing in as Jack Clitheroe got their money's worth and got and got a great show. He's, he's a superstar. I really have an awful lot of time for him. So, look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the city and around the country. Theatre Upstairs has Jack Cairo and the Long Hard Kiss Goodbye. The Viking Theatre has Tuesdays with Murray coming back by popular demand after its current run down in Cork. Uh, the Gate Theatre has A Woman of No Importance with the brilliant Marion O'Dwyer and Avian Garrahy and all those heads in there. Bewley's Cafe Theatre has Pocket Music still going on, which has been getting great responses there. Uh, and that'll be followed by Village Wooing. 
Smock Alley has Playboy the Western World and also The Lark from Fast Intent. Uh, the New Theatre has The Pitch and The Abbey Theatre has The Plough and the Stars, a play which obviously is very close to my heart, which I got to go and see the opening of last night. Uh, so many astounding performances in there. Uh, Kelly Campbell is is a really, really great Nora. And uh, and then Ginny Gogan, man, it's amazing. Dee Malloy doing just such an amazing job. It's, it's such an exquisite piece of writing. And, uh, you know, there are some people out there who are saying, you know, maybe it's been done to death a bit. I mean, this is the fifth outing of Plough in the last 10 years. Uh, is that doing it too much? I don't know, man. you got to look back and say this is an absolute classic of the Irish canon. It's it's an amazing piece of theatre and it stands up still to this day. It, it feels so contemporary still. It's just such an amazing piece of writing. It's, uh, I, look, I think it stands on its own two feet. I think it's a beautiful thing and it's, it's a great play that I, I really, really love. Uh, you know, as we look around the country then, down in Cork at the Cork Arts Theatre, we have A Life Gets Tasteless and we also have Tuesdays with Mori, which is at Ballymaloo as part of their summer season. That'll be followed there by 47 Roses by Peter Sheridan and obviously then they'll be moving up to the Viking Theatre and then ourselves Royce Productions are on the road we have uh, a good bit of touring over the coming weeks and this weekend we'll be at the Owen Ree Festival in Kilkenny on Saturday August 4th that's a late night show that's a 10 o'clock curtain there and then the following afternoon we'll be at the Lissard Festival in Cork out, uh, out in Skibbereen that's for Sunday August 5th the following weekend we're at the Gap Festival in Ballythomas County Wexford uh, we've two performances there on the Friday the 10th and Saturday the 11th and then we have uh, a few more touring dates to be announced probably next week so look that is us that is episode 39 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week (laughs) 